0: Welcome to a special bonus episode of The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Today we're sharing an archival conversation with director James Gray, whose new film, The Lost City of Z, will be the closing night selection at the upcoming 54th New York Film Festival. Gray's last film, The Immigrant, starred Marion Cotillard as a young Polish woman coming to America in the 1920s. After she's separated from her sister at Ellis Island, she becomes involved with a manipulative theater manager played by Joaquin Phoenix. The Immigrant had its New York premiere at the 51st New York Film Festival in 2013, where it was a critical favorite. Ben Sachs wrote in the Chicago Reader Beautifully shot, designed, and performed, this may well be Gray's masterpiece. Upon its theatrical release in the spring of 2014, Gray joined us for one of our free talks, which are sponsored by HBO. There, he spoke to our director of programming, Dennis Lim, about personal history, female protagonists, and Shakespeare. Let's go now to their conversation. The 54th New York Film Festival runs September 30th through October 16th, and brings the best new cinema from around the world to the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Tickets go on sale to the general public on September 11th. Film Society members at the Film Buff level or higher receive early access. To become a member, visit filmlink.org slash membership. VIP passes and subscription packages for the festival are now on sale and offer even earlier access to purchase tickets and secure seats at some of the festival's biggest events, including opening night, centerpiece, and closing night. To find out more, visit filmlink.org slash nyff.
1: Good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm Dennis Lim, the Director of Programming here at the Film Society. Uh, You just saw a trailer for The Immigrant, which we are opening here next Friday, May 16th. Uh, And welcome to our free talk with the film's director, James Gray. So we showed this film at the New York Film Festival last year. Um, We're very happy to be opening it and very happy to have you back.
2: I'm thrilled to be here.
1: So this is, um, I think, It's an interesting film for you at this uh, stage of your career. It's, um, I think, a film that represents several firsts for you. Um, You know, first time dealing with this historical period, first time uh, you have a female-centered film. Uh, But also, I think it's, in many ways, like a kind of a culmination of your other work. Uh, I think you could look at this film, given its themes, uh, family, uh, there's a certain aspect of the crime world uh, identity. This is almost like um, the film, the 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 origin myth of your other films in a way, the the a film that explains or provides a historical context for your other work.
2: This is why it's best that I don't talk about the films and you do because that's so much better than anything that I could put po- you see I, I wish that I sort of sat down at the computer and had the kind of ability to say well, I'm going to do a prequel in a sense I never thought of that and then a writer asked me about that right after I finished it, and I'm like It's completely obvious, and it never occurred to me consciously. And if it had, it would have been written much more quickly because I would have been like, what I'm doing here is the prequel, and here we go. But you never, it's interesting, Dennis, you you kind of come at these things in an unconscious way. What what had happened, and I'm not going to, well, maybe I will bore you, I don't know. I'm gonna try to keep this short and sweet, but I had an uh, uncle, his name was Uncle Seymour, which is such a great name. And I grew up, by the way, about 10 miles that way, in Queens, in Archie Bunker land. And my Uncle Seymour lived down the block from us, and he was a total curmudgeon. I remember when I was 16, he said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a film director. His answer was, that's a whole lot of nothing. (laughs) So he was not exactly a very joyful guy. And he died in 2010 and left behind a huge amount of family history stuff. Stuff I never knew existed, all the paperwork from my grandparents' trip through Ellis Island and all that stuff, which I was fascinated by. My brother and I dug through it. My father's reaction, of course, was like, what are you looking at that stuff for? And my brother and I were like, this is incredible, the family name is Greiserstein, and all the paperwork said that, and and there was a picture of my grandfather which sort of looked suspiciously like." Robert De Niro's medallion photo in Taxi Driver, which really disturbed me, kind of like deer in the headlights photo of him, and I became riveted with their history. I asked my father about all that stuff and he begrudgingly told us the family history, practically all of which wound up in the movie, you know, so uh, I, I guess it's sort of a prequel now that I think about it and a culmination but it's never, a, I don't think, or it shouldn't be a conscious thing, because if it is, then, you know, welcome to narcissism central, you know?
1: So, you were dealing, a lot of the material came from what your father told you?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, there's stuff, some of, many of you haven't seen the film, but it's like, stud details, like, she doesn't know how to eat the banana. Or, or uh, you know, like thinking spaghetti is like bloody worms. Like that kind of stuff and the background history of the character where the, her parents had been beheaded by soldiers, which is my grandmother's parents' fate. So all of that stuff, right into the picture. They say write what you know. It's not totally true because I don't really know the world. I sort of learned about it. Mm-hmm. But what is true is that the more you can put yourself into the film, usually the better it will be, I think. Because there's only one of you. I remember I once, I have to drop a name to tell this, not, he's, not a, he's not my closest pal, I wish he were, but I once uh, asked Francis Coppola, I said, well, what's, what's the best advice you've got? He said, well, you know, just, just you know, be personal and do it as do it, you, there's only one of you in the world, and if you speak with your voice, it'll come out there and it'll be interesting. I thought, well, that's good. And then I did what was me, and, and, and maybe they're like hackneyed crime dramas, which means maybe there are many of me, I don't
1: know. Be, beyond drawing on, on family history and, and sort of what you know, obviously when you, when you do a period piece like this, there has to be some kind of, I assume for a filmmaker like you, some kind of uh, research, some kind of... I,
2: I am very guilty of that, although it has stood me in no good stead. I remember I did all this research for a film I did called We Own the Night and in it I had found out, while doing it I was hanging out with the cops all day and night and doing ride-alongs and all this and I found out about this thing where it's called being a provisional officer where they put you in this, you don't don't take the test yet and all that but if you have special knowledge they make a provisional officer. This happens about three times a year and then you later join the police officially. And I put that in the movie, and if I had a dime for every time somebody said, Yeah, that thing, the provisional of the things, that, that doesn't, that, that's, that's, come on, that's ridiculous. That part I didn't like. I'm like, I, I, I didn't make that up. And what you learn is that cinema has its own set of believability rules, and it depends entirely on context. So, for example, if a film director promotes a tone in a film which bears no resemblance to the real, I suppose audiences will accept Chewbacca. You but you can't oh, make a film, right, where okay. you know, people are running around dealing narcotics in 1980s Brooklyn and have Chewbacca. So uh, I guess it's all about context, and I suppose that when you do the research, you have to understand that there's actually, you can't only do what happened. You have to, you have to prove your case four times over, and that becomes very difficult. Now, having said that, yeah I mean, I've tried to learn everything I could.' I'm like a, you know I'm like a crazy person now about Ellis Island. I know everything about that place practically, though not as much as the guy who runs the library there. There are these two dudes who work at the library, the Bob Hope Memorial Library, and they're, they're, they're like incredible you call the guy up, you say, what, you know uh, the Ellis Island Hospital, do they ha- the, the, In 1918, the charge was 20 dollars a month. But in 1919, they made it 20 dollars The 50 cents was a surcharge. You're like, oh, okay, 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 thank you, thank you, thank you, thank <laughs> you. But you try to get those details right, by the way. And I don't think, I don't think I've made any errors in the movie historically. I'm sure that there'll be like goofs. IMDB will have like some big section on the movie. But man, I tried to be fastidious on that stuff.
1: <laughs> Could you say a bit, I mean, given how personal the film is, even, you know, how, in in terms of drawing on on family history, could you say a bit about the decision to make this about um, a a Polish woman, a a Catholic, which is not your background in terms of where your family is? Well,
2: no, that's true. But what what I tried to do, because in in a certain sense, uh, making something personal is not the same thing as autobiographical. They're not synonymous, really. What is personal about... Marion Cotillard's character, I just thought, what is the best way to make your character as miserable and conflicted as possible? Because in candor for drama, that's kind of what you want. You want people in agony. If you didn't, I mean, it's not to be, and then he walks off the stage, right? He's screwed up, to be or not to be, what, 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 what am I doing here? So. I felt that the way to add an extra layer of complexity to her dilemma Would be to steal from Shakespeare which from the play measure for measure. I don't know if you guys know that play It's fantastic in which and basically a nun is asked To save her brother's life by sleeping with the judge who has sentenced her brother to death It's an incredible you know dramatic conundrum for the character so that was one of the things I thought about which was how to put her in such a state of turmoil and uh for me I think it works dramatically maybe for others it doesn't.
1: Do you think having a, a female protagonist has changed the sort of tone of it? I think there's a little bit less I don't know. Dis- well I loved it.
2: Yeah. I first of all I realized really pretty late in the game that so many of my favorite films are starring women and female protagonists. I mean I think Federico Fellini's greatest stuff is with Giulietta Messina and I I, I can't tell, I mean obviously Monica Vitti and Antonioni, and there's so many of these, von Sternberg and Dietrich, there's so many great collaborations with these brilliant actresses and in, in a certain sense we cannot take progress for granted and what I mean is that with Hollywood films there was a whole genre, right, where you had Barbara Stanwyck or like Greer Garson in the movie and that was kind of like, they were like these female driven melodramas and that's over, it's over. So I feel like that's a, well, that was a grand and beautiful and very operatic tradition by the way. Like I went to see Lucia de Lammermoor, which is this Donizetti opera which I love and it has a 16 minute aria in the middle of it, towards the end of it, in which she's basically bemoaning her state and she's crumbling into mental illness after committing a murder. And it is so impassioned and directly emotional. And there's no reason for any kind of s- submergence of emotion. And men, you know, men get together and it's like, hey, do you see the game? Do you see the game? That's, I, feel like, uh, I feel like with my wife, the discussions are very different. They're more directly emotional. Now, of course, I'm not being sexist because these are traditionally, these are culturally held beliefs. It's not like a biological thing, but still, they mattered to me, and I thought that the work was relieved of a kind of macho posturing, if that makes sense. Does
1: this make sense? I don't know how you think.
2: <laughs> you know, sometimes y- you ever see Annie Hall, where like they're on the rooftop, and the subtitles as he's talking, and one of them is Woody Allen's talking, and in the bottom it says. Christ I sound like FM radio and I feel like something that's me. I'm just rambling on it's just like, But I'm trying I'm trying to sound like I know what I'm talking about so
1: Okay, you said you said macho posturing do or you, Dennis. You, no, well, you, you, what, what do you mean like? Uh, ma, did you think that there was macho posturing in your earlier films I, you talk I, about melodrama I, you, I think your earlier films are notable for being Unafraid of melodrama and very emotional even though they were focused on men and set in men's worlds
2: That that is certainly the case But the the idea in those films was always to show that the male behavior the posturing was a charade in other words It was acknowledging that that was part of the kind of the text of our lives in a way um, and I Just in, the, the, <laughs> I guess the idea is to simplify the message in a way. Not make it simplistic, but simplify the message. Which is, in other words, once I could get rid of the idea of having to even deal with that as a subject, because you're quite right, that's true, but I was able to free myself of it. It felt oddly liberating. Now that, of course, doesn't mean I'll never make a movie starring a guy again. I'll probably do it on the next movie, but I don't know. The feminine side, or what is commonly considered the feminine side, you know, Uh, I think is really quite beautiful in the part that I think every actor always has to get in touch with in order to make the thing work dramatically and to make it emotional. So I feel like losing, as I say, the mantra posture or even the acknowledgement of it can be liberating.
1: Why don't you talk about, we could say a bit about the the actors who are extraordinary in the film. Um,
2: I love them, you know, but that's my flaw because I indulge them to no end, you know. How do you do that? how do you put it I do, Mar- Marion by the way is you made her learn Polish for the film that, she really I think she bears secret resentment towards me for that yeah. we, 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 <laughs> we did this Q&A earlier today and she said and when I read the script I liked it so much and I didn't even pay attention it said in Polish and I didn't even read it really And then I got to New York and there was all this Polish I had to learn. And she would be on set and she'd sit there like with a little book with the Polish words and she'd be like this. And then in the middle of it, she'd go, James Gray, fuck you. But she did a great job, I mean she apparently, she learned it so well, this is, talk about when being a director is just your ability to shut up. We did, I did the first scene I did with her speaking the Polish, she's talking to an actress who's a Polish speaking woman and I did a four minute take of her talking in Polish and I don't speak a word of the language and she's sitting there and I... What is she do? And I'm like, okay, this looks like she's acting pretty well. And I turned to the uh, actress in the scene. And I said, well, how's Marion's Polish? I've told this story to you before. I said, How's Marion's Polish? And she said, oh, it's very good. Very good. But it has a slight German accent. So I went up to Marion. And I said, Marion, you're Polish. has a slight German accent. <laughs> and she said... Yes, because my character is from Silesia, which is between what is Germany and Poland. Just, I'm going to go back behind the monitor now. Uh, that's fine. Thank you so much. <laughs>
1: let's, let's do
2: another one, you know. But she's really great. And Joaquin's great too. I mean, I kid, but he's very, unbelievably inventive person, you know, and a great actor, really great. And I always love the fact that he looks like he's in absolute anguish on screen. I think that's great dramatically like I, I've talked about this word like Montgomery Clift kind of thing right you see Montgomery Clift in a movie and he's like I don't know <laughs> you know like this and it's great to watch him I just watched Wild River and I was like it's like the most interesting person to look at in a movie because he looks like he's so uncomfortable
1: and that's great
2: so I do indulge them but I love them
1: how do, how do you indulge them what's that how do you indulge them they're,
2: they're, I am the anti-Nazi when it comes to the script. The, Joaquin is, to say Joaquin has gone at times off book is the understatement of all time. I mean, there are times when I'll do takes with, with him where he leaves that I'll be shooting, and he'll just walk out of the room for minutes at a time, and then he'll come back. And, but I have to let him do that, because he, what he always happens is he always comes back to what is scripted. It's a very strange thing. You'll do one or two takes where he's off the rails. Then a third take, kind of interesting, not what you pictured, not what you wrote, but interesting. Maybe better, you're not sure. Depends on the context, maybe in the editing room. Take four is more what you wrote, and it's wonderfully performed. Take five as a mix of everything, and that's usually the best. So I kind of know takes four and five with him are usually around the best I'm gonna get, then he gets tired. But that's how you indulge him. I mean, the first two or three takes are him just, you know, acting like a a, a circus acrobat, you know. But I don't mind that. I think you need that. And I think it was a big flaw of mine among about 4,200 that I, in the first movie or two, I was very much more interested in the actors doing what I wrote. And I've long since lost the confidence, and I think this is a good thing, that what I'm writing is so good that everybody should want to do exactly the words. And they come to the set for a reason. They come to bring more to the part than I had imagined, not to just read my dialogue. Now there are actors like Mark Wahlberg, whom I loved working with, who has this very surprising, by the way, level of craft. It's very difficult for Mark because his his specialty would be like John Garfield roles. Mm -hmm. And Hollywood makes movies now where he's hanging out with a cursing teddy bear or whatever. And, which is, by the way, a very entertaining movie, but, or like, you know, Planet of the Apes, he played an astronaut. It's, the they're the blue collar movies, they don't make them. So, that's what his best thing would be. And he, he has a surprise, but he loves line readings. Jim, how do you want me to do it, Jim? How do you want, just do it, just do it, say it, say it. How do you want me to do it? I Say it, say it. how you want me to do it? And then I'll say the, li- the line reading. And so then the next take, he'll do the line reading, and it'll be, of course, a bad imitation of me. But then the take after that, he will have understood the line reading and done something really different and interesting. You just have to sort of learn how the actors work, but you do indulge them
1: and you have to. Your way of working with actors, has that changed over the years?
2: Uh, quite a bit, quite a bit. Um, well, first it depends. The I, I, other thing I've learned a lot about is I'm not very good at directing actors. The truth is I'm probably better at casting picking people who I think are right for the role and who I love. Um, And I'm also probably pretty good at giving them a certain amount of freedom. I'm not very good at knowing what to say to help them. Like at a certain point, you know, I'll talk to Joaquin and I don't like what he's doing or something and then he'll just turn to me, look at me and go, eight, eight, okay, eight. he started saying this to me on Two Lovers. I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. The Two Lovers is the movie I made before this one. And I didn't know what the hell he was talking about, so I said, okay, eight. Terrific. Eight. Okay, eight. I would walk away. And then finally, like, you know, the third week of production, he was like, eight. I said, you know, can I ask you a question? Yeah. What? What what, the, what is eight? I've been acting since I was eight. <laughs> I don't need you to tell me that. It's a dumbass direction. Don't talk to me like that. Okay. So, I know that I'm not very good at adjustments, either that or, well, because you know, I'm very good friends with Paul Thomas Anderson and I asked him, I said, you know, he said, how's working with Joaquin? I said, well, he yells at me, he says eight, and he says, yeah, I'm thinking of casting him. I said, you should do it. He's a great actor. You'll have a great time with him. So, after they finished The, the Master, I said to Paul, I said, well, how, how was it, how was it? He's like, hey, man, no, it's cool, man. I had no problems, man. I'm like, he didn't say eight to you a bunch of times? Eight, eight what? I'm like, wait, wait. Let me get, let me get this straight. It was no problem, no. And then I, I see Spike Spike Jones. I'm like, hey Spike, how was how was Joaquin? He's like, oh Joaquin, he was so happy all day on set, man. It was great.
3: <laughs>
2: like, what am I doing wrong? So this leads me to believe that I really don't know what the hell I'm doing when I talk to actors. <laughs> but I can cast, you know. I I have I think I think I have good taste with actors, and I love actors. So those things sort of, so they allow me to sort of scratch my way out of oblivion, you know.
1: With Joaquin, you've worked with him for uh, four films. Four films? Yeah. Since yeah it feels like, like
2: 306, so. but yeah, it's four.
1: But uh, for somebody like that, do you write with him in mind? The uh, last did? two yeah.
2: movies I did. Yeah. Uh, the, the uh, Two Lovers and this. are totally written for him. And if he didn't want to do them, I probably wouldn't have made them. I know, I know that if he didn't want to do Two Lovers, that movie exists totally because of him and he didn't want to do it we were we were I wrote the part for him he said I don't like that script I said well alright I'm sorry And we were working on we on the night and we finished that movie and he said upon finishing he said you remember that script you wrote and the character's name is Leonard Kratitor very commercial uh, and <laughs> I said I said yeah he goes I, th- I, I think it's time I do Kratitor I said, I thought you said you didn't like the script. He said, no, nah, af- I was afraid. I was afraid of it. I guess we should do it. And so that's like the way he says yes to me. Called me up on this movie. He said, why are you doing this to me? I'm playing the worst guy in the world. I said, well. I said, are you interested? He said, worst guy in the world for like two months? I said, yeah. He goes, I don't want to do that. And then he called me back an hour later. He said, all right. And that's kind of the way it works.
1: So there's um, another collaboration I wanted you to talk about before we show the next clip. Um, uh, Darius Conji. Um, He's great. It's the first time you worked together with him? W- w- uh,
2: we had done a commercial in Uruguay. Mm. Because, you know, everyone's going to Uruguay. <laughs> it was for Buig Telecom. You see, when you make like $12.84 when you direct films that you really want to do, I mean, it's actually not being funny the movie business has gone through a great metamorphosis in the last 25 years and the middle where movies would cost in today's dollars let's say like 35 or 40 million dollars it's over so you either make the film for 10 12 million dollars at the most this was 12.8 or you get Chris Nolan budget 280 million dollars you know and those movies, generally, generally, you get paid well for them and for the small movies, you don't do them for any money at all. So you have to really support yourself another way and I do it during commercials. Now, I don't actually hate commercials because you get all the new toys, you can test everything. And I work with amazing directors of photography almost every time out and I learn from them. So Dalias and I had worked on this commercial for a Bouygues Telecom in Uruguay, and we were shooting under very difficult circumstances, and he, the commercial looked great, and he was incredibly affable. He's like this great, very spiritual French guy, and he walks around, and you say, Darius, we're losing the light. No, he's fine, he's fine. Like, he's, he's the, ob- usually the cinematographer's hysterical about the conditions, you know, and he's always like Mr. Zen, and you're like, wow, well, he doesn't know what he's doing, this, this that doesn't look good at all, and then you look at the dailies, you're like, wow, well, how did he do that? Looks amazing. He's an artist, you know, and there are very few true artists among the cinematographer ranks who speak English fluently. That's just a fact. It's the people that you look for whose sensitivities are not technical on any level. Mm-hmm. He has technical awareness, but that's not what he considers at all. And he'll let half the screen go dark, he doesn't care. The I've been very spoiled with directors of photography. I worked with Harris Savitas, who, who, who unfor- uh, tragically is dead now and was fantastic. I worked on a, several commercials on a film with him. And these people, they're like, there's an extra layer of tenderness and love they bring to the film that is really beyond, oh, the T-Stop is a 2.8, you know what I mean? It's not that. The first job I ever had in the movie business, if you could call it a job in the movie business, was that I was working at Astoria Studios when they were shooting the movie The Money Pit with Shelley Long and Tom Hanks. Directed by Richard Benjamin, that's it, I just wanted to tell you that. No, Uh, (laughs) the movie was shot by Gordon Willis, the legendary cinematographer of the Godfather films and Woody Allen's 70s films and Clute and I would watch him. They wouldn't shoot anything before lunch He would put down tracing paper and he would mark everything, where the lights would go, where the camera positions were. And then everyone would panic because you wouldn't do anything before lunch. And in the middle of the day, the middle of the morning, he would get the printer lights. They don't do this anymore because there's no more film. But he he would basically get the printer lights, which would reveal to him what the footage looked like, even just by looking at a set of numbers. And he would call the scenics out and he would say, that grass, paint the grass black. And you'd be like, paint the grass black? What, what, you, what, do they slip you LSD or something for lunch? And you'd see the scenics going, painting a lawn black, and it would look insane. And then you'd see the footage, and it would be incredible. And in the afternoon, the grips would come in, put in all the lights, and the camera positions would be set. Boom, 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 you'd do 25 setups. And he, would be, he was brutal and vicious to the camera operators. I remember he had one of the great camera operators ever working for him and he took the wheels of the camera tripod off, unscrewed them so that the camera couldn't be moved and he said to the camera operator, this is a guy who is a legend in the business, he said today your name is Anatoly Lakoff and walk away. But he had incredible craft and he knew what he was doing and he was unbelievably prepared and the movies always looked incredible. Now, there's other ways to work, right? There's ways to work where you catch lightning in a bottle and it's sort of crazy. But from him I saw an unbelievable commitment to craft. And I always admired that. It was a very big influence on me and I'm, I'm drawn very much to people who are interested in craft. Who are top-notch craftspeople first and foremost. I think it's a very high calling.
1: So, could you say a bit more about you know working with with Darius on on the immigrant um, choices you made? You yeah. obviously had to you know evoke a particular time and place on, yeah. as you said, a small budget. Yeah, yeah.
2: We. Uh, I, I'm so sorry. That was probably what you were asking, and no, I no, instead rambled I about Gordon Willis and 400 other things. I really, I'm a little bit punch drunk, as you can tell. I think I, uh, I, I don't really, I'm uh, not really. I, I, I would say that. I'm not really dogmatic with cinematographers because again, it's the same principle as with the actor. You don't want to be in a position where you're robbing them of the beautiful gifts they can bring to you. But I am also a little bit in some ways extremely specific, obviously, about how I want the film to look. Dalyus and I went to the library, New York Historical Society, we also went to Ellis Island and so forth. And the first thing that sort of hit us was a conversation we had where the person we were talking to told us about how much coal and wood was burned in the air in order to heat homes, uh, tenements. And the guy just said offhand, he said, <laughs> the sun didn't come out very much back then. I thought, oh, that's interesting. The, you have to feel the air. So that, we started with that. I would say to Darius, we have to feel the air, and he'd go, what is the feel the air? Feel the air, what do you mean feel it? Not fill it Darius, feel the air. How do you feel the air? Feel the air? Feel it, you have to feel it. I don't understand the feel it. So anyway, after a while he finally understood what I was saying. And I see him basically making the set like an EPA Superfund site. He's like pumping shit into the air. And he's like, now do you feel the air, you know? <laughs> and uh, so that it started with that. And then all of the uh, color tones, the schemes, were an outgrowth of the reality of the situation just exaggerated a little bit. So you, the the tenements were rigged for electricity generally somewhere around 1920. But even 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 if they were rigged for electricity almost exclusively they were gaslit. Now when you're if you ever see gaslight, true gaslights are ochre, it gives off a sort of ochre hue. And all of a sudden you realize not by by choice, but you're all of a sudden instantly back in Vilmos Zygmunt and Gordon Willis land without intending to be, because they didn't have fluorescent lights, there's no green coming off the, you know what I mean? So, now you're all of a sudden, everything's yellow ochre, and you can feel the air, and you're like, well, wait a minute, where's, where's young Vito Corleone, smashing the gun up on the roof? So, because the truth is, is that Gordon Willis and, and, and Vilmos Zygmunt for Heaven's Gate, they did it right. So we just, we tried not to watch those movies at all because we didn't want to copy them but we wound up c- coming around to them anyway and then we just took it and exaggerated a little bit more and we looked at a lot of paintings, particularly of the Ashcan school. Uh, George Bellows, John Sloan, William Glackens, Everett Shin was a big one. Everett Shin is a painter from around 1910, 1920. All these guys studied under a painter named Robert Henri who uh, actually also trained Edward Hopper, although Hopper came into his own quite a bit later, maybe 10 or 15 years later. But they all painted kind of low-lifes li- low in tenement, tenement, the tenement world. And uh, George Bellows who painted those boxing, b- boxing paintings, if you've ever seen them, like Stag at Sharkies or, or Dempsey versus Furpo, all kind of top-lit. And, with the, with, and the backgrounds, always are never, they're never black, they're always filled with a little bit of green. Or some kind of brown to bring them some kind of dimension. So I said to Dalius, I said, I don't want to see any black in the frame. How do I get rid of black? I said, because black is the absence of all light. It's not really a color, it's a shade. And the first lesson they tell you in painting is they say you can't, you never would just squeeze black paint into the, onto the palette and apply it directly to canvas. It's a total no-no. I tried to express to him we wanted it to be like a painting and that's the first step you have to take is never ever go for a true black and I want to see grain and all the things that David Fincher would have me lynched for. No true blacks, tons of grain, you know. So these were all the strategies that we began to employ and then of course it goes in another direction and sometimes it becomes downright fanciful and illogical, the, the lighting. But that's okay. Those were the ground rules.
1: This question may not mean people mean anything to people who haven't seen a film. Can you talk about the final shot and how you came up with it? It's, uh, I think it's one of the most beautiful and sort of haunting endings I've seen to a film in a while.
2: I like the way you think, Dennis. <laughs> um, it was always designed that way, even in script form. The shot is, it's not a practical shot at all. It involves multiple visual effect aspects. It's not an obtainable shot practically.
1: We shouldn't give away the ending, but we can, we'll just talk about the shot. Well, yeah. it has
2: multiple things going on within the frame. The idea was to, without giving it away, was to try and tell both sides of the story within one shot. And we just planned for it, and the visual effects house, who were great, by the way, right out there in Brooklyn, bunch of guys on their computers called Brainstorm. They were so great to me. And they, didn't, but, and they thought I was in, in, out of my mind because there's a thing reflected in a mirror and there's a thing you can see out into the distance and I was trying to explain it. And of course, it's a, it's a very difficult thing to explain. And then finally, I just found myself going like this. Just, just, just hang the goddamn green screen, all right? Just, just hang the green screen. We'll figure it out. Hang the green screen. You hang the green screen for me? Uh, yeah, but I got to know what we're doing. Hang the green screen. We gotta know, put the green screen up, green screen. I mean, here I am, by the way, like the most anti-visual effects guy ever, beseeching them for a green screen. Anyway, we finally got the shot, but it was about, do we had to do th- four different plates, and by the end of it, I think everyone wanted to have me killed. Hi. Hello.
3: Um, I have two questions, actually. The first one that I have is, I've been following your IMDB profile for a couple of years, and around in 2012, it was posted that you had a movie coming out that was like a fantastic, like some kind of odyssey of sci-fi? Was that like a real thing, or was that just some kind of stalling device? Or are you making a...
2: It was a true stalling device. The uh, I have completed my third year at the Central Intelligence Agency, and we are, no, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I frankly Do you know what
3: I'm talking about? Because it was up there for a while because I was trying to figure out...
2: I must tell you I don't log on to my IMDB page because I'm me and I know when (laughs) I was born, I think. So I don't really go there very often. But what I will tell you is I was and am working on a science fiction project which is extremely ambitious and I need to raise a gajillion dollars for it. So hopefully I will be able to pull that off, but it's not close yet. So that may have been what was referred to on the page.
3: Possibly, but then it disappeared. I know I sounded like a bit of a fanatic.
2: Well, no, I, I, I enjoy the fanaticism. It's good. I, I feed off it. It makes me. Uh, it makes me a very happy person. Keep being a fanatic. You're a, there's about nine of you, four of whom, are, you know, three of whom are my children. One of them was my wife. Um, no, I would say that the, it's probably just because it was announced like in a trade publication and then posted by like a very enthusiastic or hateful person, you know, which okay. is the people that <laughs> occupy the internet. Because okay, there's no so middle, but right in the middle of the internet, the internet's like this guy is the greatest thing, this guy is a worthless piece of shit, there's like no middle, you know what I mean, it's interesting. Uh, I, I love, uh, the best thing ever is my friends always tell me the worst ones which I love a friend of mine sent me a comment, about someone made, to, made about me once, which was like that I was a hack and a coward, and it was signed anonymous, which I thought was so perfect. <laughs> so what was your second question, I'm sorry. Um,
3: the second part of the question was, I saw your films in the order of, I think, We Own the Night, and then The Yards, and then Little Odessa, uh-huh. so Two Lovers was unexpected for me. I thought you were going to expand into a kind of Jean-Pierre Melville masterwork of um, Like every way to do a a, a crime story. So I didn't know if you were going to return to the the kind of New York crime story and flush that out. Because he had a like a theory that you could do what, like sixteen different versions of a crime story and then you were
2: kaput. He was a talented person. Yes. No, uh, (laughs) I love him by the way, I think he's great. You know who that is, right? Jean Pierre Melville? Yes. Circle Rouge, Le Samurai. Great director. I, I may return to crime drama at some point. I would love to do it. A lot of people don't really, they really kind of hate the idea of me going to do it. The funny thing is, you know, we were talking about here about making it personal and stuff. The first two films I made were incredibly autobiographical, and actually so was the third. We on that was had a lot of autobiographical mm-hmm. stuff. I, you know, Someone in my family is a police officer and so forth. And I would be amazed at how many um, people would tell me criticisms about this and that being hackneyed that were actually directly taken from my own life, which as I joked about before, made me feel like my own life was like hackneyed, that I'm like (laughs) a hackneyed person. So uh, at a certain point, I I tried to branch out a little bit and to use cinema as a form of personal expression, but not stealing directly from my own life. But I may return to the genre. I do love it. You know, I love it, and I think that it has, um, in in some ways it's the most cinematic of uh, genres because it's like you can focus on all human behavior except in a completely exaggerated and terrible and dangerous way. So it's 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 a it's like it's telling you the truth but not and not sugarcoating it necessarily, but at the same time it's uh you can indulge in the pleasures of it. I'm I'm very much a fan of noir for that reason. I just saw Andre de Crime Wave, which I'd ne- I'm ashamed to admit I'd never seen before. The movie's fantastic. And Dennis has seen every movie ever, so I'm sure I'm going to say to Dennis, have you seen that movie? Watch this. Have you seen that movie? <laughs> Crime Wave, you see? He doesn't even hesitate. Crime Wave, yeah. Uh, and it's, so, it's like really vivid and, and uh, I just think it's such an incredibly great way to accentuate the quirks and insanity of human beings. In in a way that other genres sometimes can't capture, I shouldn't say that because I've been watching some romantic comedies from the '30s and they can really do it, but we don't do those right anymore. So. So wait,
1: do you? Want, I I don't want to. Do you want to talk about science fiction or not? I mean, I'm, you know, cause there, I, they, because. Well, I'm really curious to hear you talk about your interest in that particular genre. Which let me let me correct myself. Is, is
2: that a sentence? Uh, phrase, uh, I will correct what I said, excuse me, which is that it's more like science fact almost. See, I, I, I'm just going to ground a limb here. I'm going to say that there's basically like four great science fiction movies ever. It's the, it must be the hardest genre to, con- to conquer because t- well, I can think of 2001, Blade Runner, uh, Metropolis. Uh, probably forgetting one or two Don't say Solaris, it doesn't hold up uh, Neither version, at least to me anyway And I do love Tarkovsky But I find that that movie gets bogged down um, Just in the interest of candor, right? <laughs> and he's dead, right? He's been dead for 30 years We may as well badmouth his shit um, Now, if you ever seen Andre Rublev, by the way It's like the greatest movie ever So I'm not badmouthing Tarkovsky uh, But one of the things I noticed about science fiction Is that It's a trap that every director seems to fall into, which is they always try to awe us at the end with something visually splendid. The largest spaceship ever comes out and gathers up the... and you're like, snooze. Because you can't visually really awe anybody into emotion. It has to be narratively driven. It has to be conceptually awesome. Now, I'm going to say something about 2001, which I suppose will be a little bit controversial. I love it. I think it's great. It's one of my favorite movies ever. So let me put that on the table now. For all of you who are going to badmouth my shit later on. I love it. But I think the movie dips slightly in interest for me. For me, um, after the HAL thing, that story where he basically fights the Cyclops, which is this amazing thing where he battles the computer and wins, it has the Stargate sequence, which I think dates poorly. I've got a long sequence where I'm looking at the Grand Canyon with like an effect put on it. And then the movie comes back around to genius. And it's very simple. It's him sitting in a room and watching himself age. And then he's dying and the monolith is there. And the camera dollies into the monolith, and then it becomes the star child. Now, he's not trying to awe us then, but he is awing me with conceptual brilliance that man is reaching a new level, a new plane of evolution. Now, that is a genius conception. So the challenge for me is to do something like that and be conceptually uh, of interest and not try to make something that is so awesome visually, dude, because I'm never going to be able to do that. They have seen everything. They have. So the, the story that I had read about, and I'm going to give away way too much, and I'm sure somebody is going to write something about it now, but why not, right? I'm here, I'm, I'm punch drunk. The, I had read about Fermi warning the people developing the bomb that in doing the atom splitting for the first time, there was a, rem- a 90% chance, this is the way he put it, there was a 90% chance that all known matter in the universe would not be destroyed. And they did the experiment anyway, and they split the other. I always found that extremely alarming. That they did the experiment with a 10% chance that all known matter in the universe would be destroyed. So, I started to think, well, a very uh, kind of Heart of Darkness, Apocalypse Now thing, that somebody is going to do an experiment because they have nothing to lose like that and we have to send somebody to destroy him so that is basically what it is and the thing that's in the middle of it of course is the terrible cabin fever that begins to set in I mean I had read also about trips to Mars where they were purposely trying to recruit people with Asperger's syndrome because people who are like you know idiots like me who are sitting around going "Uh, I want to go I want to go get some Chinese food we would not handle having to not interact with people for a year and a half long trip are we are we screwing for time is that what dennis is doing right there we are okay let me wrap it up point of fact is i gotta i gotta go i gotta go to the dga after this i gotta, I gotta go do something so they're not crazy uh i i'm just rambling is this really boring i'm sorry i'm no, just no, going we, we want you okay, to finish is that. okay all right so anyway to wrap it all up wrap it up uh, so i had read about this and i thought well interesting to sort of combine a conrad type idea with something that goes terribly wrong and they choose people that they think are like appropriately emotionally repressed and they're kind of not emotionally repressed enough and this craziness that happens on the way so this was the kind of conception and the way i wanted to shoot it was like apollo footage like incredibly not when i say realistic they go all oh, like gravity and i go no 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 not the 17 minute take with Particulate flying into the camera just like That documentary for all mankind the footage of the Apollo. I don't know if you've seen that. It's very interesting stuff The footage is remarkable. They shot all this 16 millimeter footage and doing it like that very reality based almost almost science fact like uh, 50 years in the future that kind of thing and To fight the temptation another mistake. They all make of a dystopian future You know the idea that, the future is really bad. Everything sucks. <laughs> Which I think is a very boring, dramatic idea. Because the truth is that the path of human development has been fairly good over the past thousand years. I mean, it's sort of like this, right? We have, you know, little blips like Hitler, you know, things, things that aren't, you know, they're not so good. But, but generally, we're not living in, like, black plague land. You know what I'm saying? That people live better than they did in 1300. So... I think it's important to promote a future that is both dystopian and sort of, uh, in some ways, considerably better than what we have now.
1: Do we have time for another question, or will we wrap? Okay, I'm sorry, I'm but right. you have to be somewhere, apparently. Um, but uh, thank you all for coming. The Immigrant opens May thank 16th. Uh, come see it. Tell all your friends about it.